0: Episode 181, The Siege of Jerusalem and the Prophecy of the Virgin Birth Northern Israel, under the leadership of King Pekah, allied himself with the Ramalia of Damascus of the Arameans in a bid for power. We don't have a lot of specifics in their historical writings, but we can read a lot into what's going on. Tiglath-Pileser has been king of the Assyrians for a bit, and his power is what the world fears. Judah is mighty to the south. With over a 100,000 man army. Egypt, far to the south, is mightier and wants to be a player in the world again. The alliances of northern Israel and Aram present a united front and a challenge to the Assyrians. Pika probably dreams of a battle like Karkar, which drives the Assyrians back, but honestly, Pika is super weak and he's relying on Aram to guarantee him safety from Assyria. But instead of uniting the world against the Assyrians, Pika and Ramalia get greedy and want too much and desire more power. In the end, their desire for conquest and a name for themselves will lead them weakened and paralyzed to resist the world's superpower on the rise to the north. Pika and Ramalia join forces and invade Judah in a game of risk, hoping to seize enough to empower themselves until the inevitable greater conflict comes. The result of the invasion was a military success and a heartbreaking loss to Judah. Judah. All of Judah's army is either killed in battle, taken prisoner, or made captive when the invading armies came, except for those who escaped to Jerusalem. Jerusalem holds out and is placed under siege by northern Israel and Aram. We spoke of this before, but when the pressure comes, we know what is really in a person. Let's explore this more. When the pressure comes, we know what is really in a city. When the pressure comes, we know what power truly lays in the anointing. Jerusalem is surrounded and under siege. Arrows and fire have killed many and the threat of starvation looms over the city. Death is in the waiting. 120,000 soldiers have been killed and over 200,000 have been taken as prisoners and they were probably given back over and sent back into Jerusalem to cause starvation rates to increase, inflating the population already on reduced rations. Death is in the waiting. Israel's king is a total loser, but the people are not. God has promised greatness to the city of cities, the place of his dwelling, but judgment has been spoken over Jerusalem in the recent years. Will there be repentance or something greater? Two armies converge on Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been taken many times over in history, but Ahaz this time he walls himself up, his people and his country in the fortress city, and prepares for the drawn-out siege. Provisions are hauled into the city and weapons were consolidated. Headcounts were taken and stations were assigned of varying garrisons along the walls. Its king, Ahaz, withdrew to his idols and worshipped them, searching for a spiritual solution, persisting in his ignorance from the obvious solution of repenting and pursuing the God of heaven. The net began to close around Jerusalem, and the city was about to be cut off from the outside, even as ranging arrows were sent into the city, and catapulted stones began to rain down on the city. Ahaz tried in vain to re-engineer Uzzah's catapults, but no one in the kingdom could figure them out, and the ropes were bounding them were corroded and had snapped further. Further, the winches were rusted and breaking, and not one of them could withstand the resisting weight applied to test runs which ruined the devices. Ahaz was left with no catapults, and only squads of archers to resist tide of battle working against him. Now this is where we get to a variety of accounts, which we've covered in the special episode uh, titled Special Episode, uh, Prophecy of the Virgin Birth. The focus of this episode was to cover context, and I'm going to slip in a segment from that episode right here and add more detail at the end. Here it is, and forgive me for any the lower audio quality issues or anything like that, Um, and for repeats if you remember this one from two or three years ago. Um, So here is an excerpt from the uh, Prophecy of the Virgin Birth special episode. I mean, two armies and two kingdoms were attacking Jerusalem at this moment. And you know, that as a prophet walks in, you know the prophet is going to wow you, because that's what prophets do. But this time, it is in the middle of a battle situation. The battle is underway. Their siege equipment was possibly hurling huge stones into the city and crashing walls. Archers were upon the walls, and it was a war zone. The steep walls of Jerusalem upon the ridge made it a great defensive position, but the battle had to be tenuous, and in walks the prophet. Isaiah speaks, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Now the stubs of firewood are the king of Israel and Aram. And the prophet continues in Isaiah 7 7. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Reason, its king. Within sixty five years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all." This is the beginning of the word, and it appears to be made during the battle. So God was prophesying the defeat of these two nations and their destruction. The word is quite staggering. God is stating that the country of Israel will no longer exist, and in sixty-five years Assyria will rise and destroy them. Also Damascus or the Arameans will be conquered as well. This is no small matter. God was going to allow northern Israel, which was promised to Abraham, conquered by Joshua and secured by King David, to be leveled and its people to be killed or deported. What an awful, awful thing that was prophesied. There must have been that typical prophetic silence after these words. So terrible would the Assyrian invasion be that it would later be declared falsely that the ten tribes from the Northern Kingdom, were completely missing and lost to history because the loss was so great. But in the middle of this terrible prophecy, God would be offering redemption. It is so true, every time God tears down, He builds back up later. But there is always redemption, despite their sin and unfaithfulness. God was going to pave a way for redemption. Now there appears to be a gap in time here for a reason, for the weight needed to be felt, the destruction of their brothers. How terrible, even if they were fighting today and were waging war against each other, how terrible would it be for people to lose their own kin, their own heritage, their brothers. Almost setting up the next scene, ignoring the sounds of warfare in the city, Isaiah asked the king a question. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God wanted to show his faithfulness to Judah at this moment. Your enemies will be defeated, and you alone will hang on. Come on, Ahaz, ask me for a sign, God is saying. Come on, Ahaz, everyone knows you don't follow God, only false gods. Everyone knows you sacrificed your own son in the fire. But at this moment, God was reaching out. Ahaz. But Ahaz's awful, awful answer was this I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Wrong answer, Ahaz. He didn't believe in God. In fact, this demonized king most likely could barely handle the presence of Isaiah. Why would he feed this prophet's madness? He probably thought. But God wanted to grant Ahaz mercy and told him to request a sign but he didn't. Instead, he answered with an ignorant, foolish attitude of disrespect. Now, God chose this moment to release one of the many prophecies that would set the stage for the redemption of all mankind. And what seems to be the worst timing and worst delivery of all time in the middle of a siege, God chose perfectly. Millions of Israelites from northern Israel will be disappearing into the unknown realm of Assyria. They will be deported, killed, or enslaved. Generally speaking, ten tribes will be disappearing from history for centuries. And following this awful judgment for their idolatry, God presents protection for Judah and offers a sign. The king rejects it, but God, who is speaking from the mouth of the prophet, doesn't live in the now either. He lives in the future, and after judgment, redemption is in the works. Here is a seemingly ridiculous, out-of-step prophecy that speaks of the redemption of all mankind. Here is God's answer. Isaiah seven thirteen, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. When it seems the Israelites were being completely abandoned to their fate, God was beginning to reveal his ultimate plan of salvation. And to this wicked king who sacrifices his own son to demons, God was speaking of the ultimate, pure, and perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that would redeem mankind and conquer sin. The answer to their sin and their idolatry was Jesus. God's ultimate plan for all mankind in Israel would be the salvation and restoration with God through the virgin birth and belief in Jesus and His redemption obtained on the cross at Calvary. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, His one and only Son, to die so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. At just the right time, God would send His Son, His one and only Son, to be born of a virgin, to be raised, and to bring the kingdom of heaven, and to die on a cross at Calvary to redeem all mankind. All right, so that was our excerpt from the previous episode, and as we've studied over the last three or four years, setting historical context, there's more. There's a bit more historical detail now that we just studied over time and understand things. First, here's the prophecy. There is going to be a virgin birth, and before the child is the age of accountability, these smoldering stubs of firewood, the nations of Aram and northern Israel, will be destroyed. So this is an example of a prophecy that happens in the now and the future, which is common for the Old Testament prophecy. Many scholars point out to a virgin actually giving birth to a son in the royal house of Judah as actually occurring. But we actually have no record of this. But we do, of course, have the future fulfillment at the time of the birth of Jesus. As for a baby born at the time, at this historic time, from a virgin, any baby born soon after this time will not be the age of accountability before these nations are destroyed from the map. And this will happen. Assyria will decide to invade Aram and Israel from the north, and that vassaldom is not needed by Aram or Israel. Instead, Assyria will destroy their kings, deporting masses of people and importing new people and groups into these uh, previous nations. And within 10 years, these nations will no longer exist. So back to the virgin birth. This is one of those super strange placements for such an important prophecy, but that's the point. God hid his prophecies in plain sight, overshadowed by the current need, who thought this would imply the future redeemer of the world. Fulfill it now and it would be considered complete. Fulfill it later as well and show your sovereignty. Put it in a judgment prophecy and it will not be lost in a closet. Put it in a judgment prophecy that is fulfilled in the next ten years, and you have one of the most well-documented prophecies in history revealing the power of God, and hidden inside of it is the prophecy of the Messiah. What ties the two accounts together, beyond the obvious, is the name Emmanuel. Let's end discussing the name Emmanuel and its tie to Jesus. To conclude this episode a Message to Kings, 732 years from this historic time, there will be another encounter, this time with the angel Gabriel, Matthew 1, 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because she has conceived in her something from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us and there is no doubt this implies Jesus. He is God with us. This is what he is and what he has done And we have a clear reference in Isaiah's prophecy to Matthew 1. Emmanuel, God is with us, is so true. God was truly with Judah when all seemed against them. Even when their king was against them, God was with them. Greater is he who is with us than those against us. What power was on display is incredible. In the midst of tragedy, God's hand was prophesying. In the midst of violent aggression, Heaven would have its revenge on the nations. In the midst of idol worship, a prophet delivers forth and delivers God's judgment. In the midst of a king who sacrificed his own son, God prophesies the death of his own son for the redemption of all mankind. God with us. Jesus walked the earth for 33 years. Three of these years he performed miracles, signs, and wonders, and then was willingly led like a lamb to the slaughter to be the sacrifice of all sacrifices for sin. His sacrifice was the atonement and the fulfillment of the law. Before he left the earth, he told his disciples, Surely I will always be with you. In John 14, Jesus said, After I go, the Holy Spirit will come and abide with his disciples. He said, In essence, I will always be with you. God is with us. Even if we cannot see him or hear him perfectly, God is with us. Jesus walked with us and talked with mankind, and he left his spirit for all who receive him God is with us even in the hardship and the trial and the siege and the warfare God is with us God is with this people he is with you God is working for you and not against you and after the end of Israel as a nation after it was rebirthed and taken away time and time again after the Romans ruled the land but a despot allowed the temple to be rebuilt allowing Jewish customs to win the people's favor After great violence and bloodshed and godlessness, an angel chose an unassuming, unexpecting, humble and poor woman named Mary to carry the word made flesh in her womb. And upon his birth, he was raised to walk the same streets of every normal person in his day, to see the oppression of the rich and powerful, to feel the heart of the common person, to have compassion and love for the broken. The commoner like you and me, a commoner walking the streets today, bringing about change through love, God's power. God is with us, Emmanuel, carrying the strength of heaven in the form of love touching the hearts of men and women. Lord, you said you would always be there, and you would never leave us or forsake us. Lord, show us your face, your presence, your love, and reveal to us that you are always there. You are all-powerful and all-loving and all-present. Our enemies are but two smoldering stubs of firewood. Why should we ourselves concern ourselves with them? No matter the trial, the power, the struggle, God, reveal your perspective and how you are always there. God with us. Emmanuel, be with us. Manifest yourself to us and show us your great salvation. for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at Kings at gmail.com.